The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Aussie Pinball Podcast. And welcome to another installment of the Aussie Pinball Podcast. We're up to episode 11, and sorry about the uh, time delay, but everyone's been very busy now that pinball's back in full swing. This week's episode, we're joined by the one and only Marco Rosignoli, who Australians would know, and maybe people who are pinball historians would know, is the author of four large books all about pinball. In his books, he traces the development of various aspects of pinball. He outlines various eras in the game in other books. And he's also famous for his pinball timeline, which has to be seen to be believed. We'll talk about more about this. We'll talk about his Italian origins and find out about his current and future plans. Hope you enjoy. And leading us in, a little bit of Ice House with one of their greater hits, Grey Southern Land. So joining me today for a chat from, you'll have to guess where, because it's the most common place for the most common people in the world who play pinball, downtown Newcastle, is Marco Rosignoli. Now, do I say that nearly correct? Uh-huh. You're close enough, mate. Close enough. <laughs> it's better than Rawdon Osborne. It's, it's even harder. <laughs> uh, Rossi, you have to. The GN is Rossignoli. Rossignoli. Yeah. Very nice. And as we can tell, that's a a damn fine Italian name. Yeah, correct. So, uh, how old were you when did your great journey over to Australia? Um, nineteen seventy-five. So I was nine years old when I came cool. over. Yeah, and why did the uh, why did the family come over here? Oh, my uh, my father was dead set keen on settling down in Australia ever since he was a kid. Luckily, he picked Australia and not the US. Because <laughs> that Ooh, post, controversial well, post <laughs> post war Italy, you either you know a lot of people just went left Italy. It was too hard to restart. Uh, a lot of people went to came to Australia, a lot of people went to the US. Luckily, but you know, it wasn't a post-war thing. My dad just wanted to come to Australia, so eventually he did. Which part of Italy were you? Northern Italy, in a town called Verona. Nice. I might just add a few things in here while I got you on Verona. Funny thing is, when I left Italy to come to Australia, it was at the same time that a pinball company started up in my hometown. So it was uh, Nordomatic. They started up in, I think, about 1974, 75. And the strange thing is that when I did a little bit of research for, for one of my books, I found out that they were basically just around the corner from where I used to live. <laughs> and you didn't know it at the time? I didn't know it at the time. You know, I was only eight years old. And yeah, when I did some research and I found some old flyers from Nordomatic, they were Via Cacciatori Piemontesi something something. And I Googled it. And I actually, I didn't have Google at the time. There was no Google Maps. I did actually find an old map of Verona and trying to find the street. And bastard, it was only like five-minute walk from my place. <laughs> you could have had a job. Yeah. 
Anyway. Ah, name, name their most famous game. Well, I think their most famous game is Antares. was their last game, I think. It was their okay. first. It was their first solid state and their last game. They built about seven or eight games. It was like a flash in the pan from '75 to about '79. Four years they built about twelve games. And one was a copy. The other one, probably the most famous one. You know, another famous one was a copy of uh, a Gottlieb top score, which was a bowling theme. My first recollection of a pinball game was actually when I was a kid in Italy. My cousin had a little bagatelle with mechanical flippers, and I can still remember it. Like I can still remember it. It was uh, like a space, like an aviation space theme where there's a little bagatelle, but you, use, you put the marbles in, you plunge the marble, and you had mechanical flippers, and the ball would go up, and, it, you know, you'd try to, have to shoot it up and shoot it into the holes that were, you know, holes that were facing towards you. And the uppermost scoring hole, which was the one that scored the most points, was like a Sputnik or like an, an Apollo capsule. And then as further you go down, the, the, the aviation and the space got less and less. And I think down the bottom was a hot air balloon or something, <laughs> thing like that. And that was the first, yeah, that was the first time, that was the first sort of introduction to pinball. I came to Australia. I, I left Italy at a time where pinball was starting to boom. Uh, when, I, when I left, like I said to you before, when I left Italy, I later found out that there was a pinball factory going to be built next door, basically five-minute walk from where I lived. My first, my first pinball experience was actually a little bagatelle, and I never forgot that. And still, because Italy, um, well, a lot of Europe, but Italy, Germany in particular, both huge on pinball back yeah. in the day. Yeah, that's right. Germany, Italy, and people that don't know much about history of the game, they sort of, you see their eyes go wide open when you tell them, Gottlieb, a third of their production went, went to Italy. They'd actually had, you know, in the 60s, they, they had a specific market for Italy. They built games for the Italian market with, with Italian words on the back glass and such. That was that big. That they were, One third of their factory were basically for Italy, Italian games. Wow. Yeah. And they're responsible for the uh, term that we all know and love, the Italian bottom. The Italian bottom? Do you know what the Italian bottom is? Oh, the, the, the tray or the, the uh, on the pinball, you mean? Yeah, well, our, <laughs> we, we won't stray with our conversation to any other sort of bottom, but um, yes. There's heaps of bottoms in Italy, I tell you. Yeah, and they're always, they're always pinched from what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Italian bottom being the um, in-lane, out-lane, be able to catch the ball on the flipper so you can reach for your cigarette, which is resting on the lockdown bar, and oh, a glass that's a, of well, that's a new Chianti. Yeah, because that's a new they all they all hated Paragon when it first came out. Because, of course, you couldn't trap up on that yeah, uh, yeah. side with the double flipper. Yeah, and okay. they actually had to modify the game to put a rail in there so people could trap up. So it became the manufacturers actually changed it to that to suit the Italian style of play, which was lots of chatting, lots of drinking, lots of smoking. <laughs> um, yeah. And you needed to be able to trap up. And it became yeah, okay. known as the Italian yeah, I've, heard of, I've heard of that. Yes, I've heard of that. I didn't quite yeah. get into it, but yes. <laughs> You're not into the Italian bottom. Nah. <laughs> so you came over, did your school here, ended up working as a surveyor at a guess. When did the bug bite in the pinball world? There's a bit of a backstory to that. I can actually pinpoint the exact date. 1982 was um, when I started doing, studying surveying at TAFE College at Newcastle TAFE. 
and they had a what they call a student union building. It was a quite a wide corridor in this building, and it was they had about six or seven pinball machines on one side and about six or seven video games on the other. Of course, you get down there at lunchtime or in the afternoon after a class, and your mates would be there from school, and you started playing the pinnies. So. That's when it really started. Yeah, 1982. I remember it well because I was at uni in 79 through to 83 and we had the same thing except within about a year all the pinball machines left and we just ended up with Space Invaders and then Galaga and then Frogger. (laughs) So uh, well done to Newcastle Tafe for maintaining the pinball. Yeah, Um, well, it was from... From 1982 till about, I think last time I actually did the class there was probably about 85. And I actually started, I worked, went to Brisbane to work for about a year. So I don't know what happened after that. But yeah, they, they, they were pumping money. It was probably the most lucrative arcade in Newcastle, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And what was the game that grabbed you by the uh, Italian bottom? <laughs> they were all good, like um, the, the Centaurs and the Hornet Houses. There was, you know, Centaur came out a year earlier, like in 81, or, but there was still, it was still on site and the Williams Black Knight and things like that. And did, enough, did, the ha- did the haunted house come with its own sorry out of service sign? Almost, <laughs> almost. There's a, there's, a, there's a story I like to tell you. Hopefully you don't edit this out. But anyway, because <laughs> we, we, we only got so much time to talk. We got all day. We go could for probably it. talk forever. But there was three of us playing this haunted house, see? One guy, and I can still remember his name. His name was Cookie for some reason. I never knew this guy in, outside of TAFE. Like, I only knew him because we started playing pinball together. And uh, there was three of us playing, and he was rough. Like, he, he was pretty rough with the games, you know, kicking them and swearing and whatever. And then he had a really bad ball once, and he he put his fist down on the lockdown bar in anger. And it made that as he did that, it made that funny sound when you put in your money through the – Oh. So it went – it made a sort of – Hornet House had this – had its own sort of sound. It made the sound, and then we were looking at each other. Did you just hear that? So he kept bashing it. And it, all these credits used to come, <laughs> just started coming up every time we bashed it. So it was obviously there was a switch in the coin, uh, in the coin mech that was a little bit loose. And yeah, we played all afternoon. I think I've probably missed out on a class or two. But anyway, oh, the, that's the little... bad things you do. So every operator of a haunted house at Newcastle hated you guys because the audits would come back a thousand plays and it made six dollars. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But I think from, from memory, I think, see, this haunted house was right next to the office where you would go and get change. And they had one of these half doors where you open the top half and the bottom half would be a um, like a desk, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's where you would go and get your change. And, yeah, you'd sort of, after a while, they figured out what we were doing. So that was the end of that one. Um, <laughs> playing pinballs at the TAFE, that's when... Yeah, 1982, uh, yeah, I got hooked. But also, I think it it planted the seed that, uh, how could I say it, things are sticking in my mind, you know. I discovered, I remember looking at a backlash once while I was waiting for my turn, and it was a a time warp, I think. Yeah, it was a time warp, a Williams time warp. And I'm sitting here looking at the backlash while waiting for for somebody to have their go. And I'm looking, and I can see a signature on the backlash. And that sort of started me thinking, okay, the... Actually, people build these things. Oh, there's an artist behind this. There's obviously a 
a designer who built the game and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so I guess that started the, the – um, planted the seeds of knowing, trying to figure out what's behind all these games and and, and maybe uh, cemented a bit of history, you know, in my brain. Yeah. So then you um, – I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit from the forward of your book, The Complete Pinball Book, for those who don't know, written by Marco first release, published in 2000, I think. Yeah, 2000. third yeah. edition sitting in front of me here. But I like from the forward that said uh, the seed was also planted by you and your brother keeping a uh, list of all the games you had played. Oh, that, I'm, yeah, that I'm glad you asked that because I still have that list somewhere in my filing cabinet. Yeah, we sat down and wrote down all the games that we had come across. Obviously, there was no, no internet those days and I'd... There was no such thing as a pinball book. Yeah, that's what happened. We, we started writing down all the games that we played. Nice. A rudimentary so, pinball list. So Vanessa Gilbert. is my, That's my <laughs> ex-wife. Ah, there we go. She wrote the forward and she wrote it very well. So, yeah, yeah I was wondering. Uh, I started to read I thought she must have been a wife at some stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thank her for a lovely forward. So the pinball book, you've written four books. Was this the last one? That you wrote? The Complete Pinball Book. book. No, it was the first one. First one. Good. So we'll deal with that one first. What the hell were you thinking taking that on? I remember the stern 30th anniversary book that I bought on Kickstarter, which I think took a dedicated team with all the resources they need from the stern company. It took them six years to write that book and before it came out. And here we go, a little dude from Australia. How long did it take to actually put this... 320 page was it volume. That is it that long? Blimey. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I know it's it was um, something like 100,000 words and a thousand photographs, which I ended up not actually liking the most of the photographs, but we'll, we won't dwell on that too much. To, to answer your first question about why I started writing a book, it all goes back to, I guess, that list that my brother and I started in a way. There was no, there was no books available at at the time, I remember picking up a book on pinball machines. It was Lure of the Silver Ball in 1988 in Sydney. So between 1988 and 1997, so almost 10 years, there was sort of nothing really around that covered the history of pinball. And I was out of work at the time. It was 1997. I was out of work. And I reckon I said, oh, I reckon I can do something here. I reckon I can start writing something. But I didn't expect it to turn out you know, 300 bloody pages. Yeah, so that's how it started, really, because uh, there was nothing around. And, you know, from 1988, from the lure of a silver ball, which was written by um, Bill Kurtz and Gary Flower, I believe. So there was te- there's a 10-year gap of no history. And I, mate, I could write this without even re- any research because I, I basically lived it. You know? <laughs> no, so I started, I started writing the book in 19... 19- 98 what evolved was rather than do a book the beginning of pinball and just do a chronological something in chronological order this was the first pinball that with the flippers and then afterwards came back and after came this book uh sorry this game and then afterwards came this game so you know something in chronological order i decided to split things up into this is the evolution of the flipper this is the evolution of sound this is the evolution of the pop bumpers and so on. So it ended up being, I think, there was nine chapters on all different areas of pinball. But not just the missing 10 years. You do you go all the way back. 
Yeah, you can't. Yeah, that's right. You got to start. You have to start from the beginning. You can't just rely on people knowing <laughs> knowing a lot about history. So yeah, you have to obviously restart, start from the start. So. And my favourite chapter. <gasps> my secret shame. We'll cover your secret shame later, but my secret shame is you've got an entire chapter devoted to video modes. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that took a lot of that took a lot of research. Uh, yeah, video modes on pinball machines. Yeah, that's right. I love I love video modes on pinball machines. I'm one of the dorky ones that do. Apart from Tommy, that's a yeah. rubbish video mode. Yeah, Johnny Mnemonic's my favourite video mode. All the Indiana Jones ones, and especially the fact they put cheats in the video modes. I like the dancing frog on Indiana Jones, a pinball adventure. I've only managed to do it once when I remembered uh, which mine shaft barrier to break through, and then oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the dancing frog comes across oh. the screen. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. I, I used the book, um, read it cover to cover when I was on a hard quiz doing the quiz show to see what tidbits I could get oh, off yeah. it. Yeah, and yes. it did help. It helped a lot. There's a lot of info in there, a lot of games. It, it closes off. So it released in 2000. So what was the last game that was in it? I think you uh, were mentioning uh, Pinball 2000 as the yeah, future. Yeah, I was mentioning <laughs> that, yeah. And, and look, Schiffer Publishing have asked me if I wanted to update uh, the book, sorry, not the game, and I had to decline because there was too much work. Yeah, oh, I have no too doubt. Too much work. So and, you, I didn't quite find that. How long did it take you to write this book? Two years. Wow. Two years to write because I the reason I started I was out of work in '97, so I was out of work for a couple of months. I started in '97. It was delivered to Schiffer Publishing in 1999, and then they took about a year to put it together and and get it printed and and out yeah. on the shelf. And it's yeah. good quality. It's good quality. One thing that's terribly wrong in the book that needs correction is. You can pick up a diner for one thousand dollars, or a flight two thousand for seven hundred and fifty, <laughs> oh. according to your book. Oh, I, hated I hated, I hated the fact that they wanted us, they wanted uh, me, sorry, not us, uh, us, as in the collective of Schiffer Publishers. Yeah. If you if you pick up all the the Schiffer Publishing books, all the authors had to give a rough value of from anything, from anything to a pinball game to a necklace to a vase of a specific <laughs> a specific type of vase. For the listeners, Schiffer Publishing is a company that's still out there, but they did they do specialised books for collectors on anything. I've seen right. Schiffer books on Hawaiian shirts <laughs> and that sort of thing. And they're still around and they're still quite – Peter Schiffer, I think was his name, or it still is his name, Peter Schiffer, very smart people when it comes to the printing business because they're still around. Anyway. Australian or overseas company? Over, overseas in Pennsylvania. Okay. All yep. the photos, what percentage of those were from games in Australia and how much did you have to source from overseas? Most of the photos were from overseas. I, I could have probably told you exact numbers – you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, but most of them were supplied by, by people. There was a lot of uh, – I went around taking photos, but not whoever I can get in contact with and was able to send photos. And they're all acknowledged at the front of the book, I notice. You've got a nice rogues gallery of uh, acknowledgements of Australian pinballers I see there, everyone from, from Graham McGuinness and uh, at the Goat Shed and uh, – yeah, Rawdon Osborne would be in there. Rawdon Osborne's in there and Andrew <laughs> Ferguson, all these yeah, games. Andrew. I know people that are still uh, active in the hobby, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's right. Helped you yeah. out a lot, which is great. Yeah. Excellent. 
Excellent. Yeah, the only thing the only thing I disliked about the book was obviously in the design. I didn't have much much of a hand in the design of the book. In the process of sending all my information to the publisher, was you obviously have the text, and then you've got all the photos. So you tell the designer, okay, I want these photos. There was a certain code you had to put in on the back of the photo, and they, no digital photography, by the way. This is all. A film photography so it was a pain digital cameras 1999 they were like one megapixel if you could get one you know you had to tell the designer okay i want this photo roughly near this paragraph and i want this photo roughly near that paragraph so you had a coding that you the the designer could understand where you wanted the photos and then you had to give a grading of the photos, either A, B, or C. A meaning, yes, this photo has to go in no matter what. B is uh, second grade. And then C was, well, if you've got the room, put this in. What the designer ended up doing is putting just about all the photos in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a 1,000 photos. And some of these photos, like I said, the C grade, I actually said, well, you know, you could have left that out, made yeah. – designed, <laughs> you know, designed it a little bit better, you know, spaced it out better. But anyway, that was – and. A lot of the photos weren't even um, colour corrected. You'll look back with a critical eye. I think it's a great (laughs) book. (laughs) So tell me about the three more books which I have been neglectful and I haven't got copies of, so I'm going to have to hunt them down. Pinball Snapshot, Pinball Memories and Pinball Perspectives. What can you tell us about those? The Complete Pinball Book was my first book and it's actually, over the years, it's outsold the other three books put together. For some reason, I don't know why, because every other book had had the same sort of, they were advertised the same way and sort of put out there the same way. I started working on Pimble Memories straight after the complete Pimble book. I don't, th- I don't think the complete Pimble book was even out on the shelf and I started working on Pimble Memories. But I decided I'm just going to, rather than talk about history, because I'm not going to rewrite the complete Pimble book again, rather than do a book on the history, I'll do a book on individual games from certain eras so you know okay i think in, uh, the pinball memories i started off like 1960 or something so I'll, I'll go from 1960 to 1998 which was basically the time that i started writing the other books uh, the, the first book just pick a game from each era and just write about it so that's that's uh, how the other three books came about pinball memories uh pinball snapshot and pinball perspectives are basically typically the same sort of book where I've just picked a certain game and just talked about it. And I got better at taking photography, doing photos, it's still on film. So you'll notice that in Pinball Memories and the other two uh, Pinball Perspectives and Snapshots, the photographs are a much better quality. I've just checked and all three are still available on Amazon Australia. Oh, cool. <laughs> yep, so Excellent. you can still get them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good. I'll have to look at them. I think I do remember seeing them and I thought – it felt to me like they were small components of the complete pinball book. And I thought, well, if I've got the complete pinball book, I don't need them. And I think that's the way that sort of came across to me in the yes. advertising. Yeah, now that you mention it, uh, do, you re- uh, do you recall people saying to me, oh, I thought it was just a reprint or something of the original book or of something like that. Parts. Yeah, smaller yeah. parts of the yeah. book. That's, that's yeah. probably where they fell down in their marketing. But I will have to look. That's good. Yeah, but it, right. it doesn't really matter. But the, the good thing about right. those books is that, um, like I said, the photography is much better. I just did my own photography. They still had the problem of 
not sort of colour correcting them. I knew how Schiffer designers worked then, so I was able to sort of steer them in the right direction and a better, a better designed, better designed books. Cool. So that took up a few years of your life. So then you decided, I'm sick of doing books. Let's just make the world's biggest pinball poster. Tell us about the pinball timeline. Well, the pinball timeline is, yeah, now where do I start? Because it's quite a long, you know, everything's got a backstory. Whenever I tell something, there's a backstory somewhere. Yep. Pinball timeline started off in 2013. So it was a fair, it was a fair distance between my last book and the pinball timeline. And we had already started our um, Pinfest. Yeah because we'll talk about Pinfest later, Pinfest, Pinball Festival here in Newcastle started in 2012. And in 2013, I saw a pinball timeline type poster that was displayed in one of the pinball expos or what have you. I think it was the Texas Pinball Festival in 2013 or something like that. They had a brief pinball timeline that they showed on at the show. And I thought, oh, I could do something like that for Pinfest, you know, like I could just do something quickly. It bullshit quickly. <laughs> it, like it took once I got started, it's it was like, oh yeah, I should include this game in there, and that's a fairly significant game. I should include that one in, and then I should include this one. So it just just started. It started off from a really simple idea to a humongous undertaking at the moment. So at the moment, it, it is an unfinished piece of work, and it starts off somewhere around the. 1948 and finishes around about 2003. That's how it started. Like, I want to do a timeline. I'll, I'll uh, show it at the next Pinfest show, which didn't happen. And it took another three years before I could actually display the unfinished version at Pinfest 2016. I think it was Pinfest 2013 where Norbert Snicer was there. You all know Norbert. And I just, stupid of me, I just happened to mention to him, look, Norbert, I'm working on Pinball Timeline, you know, and, you know, I just said to him, oh, you know, I'm just going to do something. I'm working on it. It's going to just be like sort of a longitudinal poster where people will be able to see the years and what happened in those years and so on and so forth. And he goes, oh, that's a great idea. Tell me when it's finished. And so for the next three years, he was on my heels about, have you got it finished? Have you got it finished? Have you got it finished? <laughs> so then one day I said, uh, look, Norbert, I'll do that. I'm going to finish it, but it won't be finished. So I'm going to finish what I have and clean up what I have, and then I'll send it to you, and you can do what you want with it. That's when he printed it out for the first time and plastered it up on the wall at the Kuji Diggers when they were having their competitions there, and I think that was 2016 from memory. I remember walking around that wall. I mean, how long was the bleeding thing at that stage? How many uh, metres? So <laughs> obviously, 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 it depends on the size of the print. I have, I think it was something like 10 metres mm. easily. But he had it, no, he would, his would have been more because he actually had it enlarged quite a bit. Correct. So it would have been maybe 15 metres. Yeah, so, it covered about three different walls. You had to walk around from the, the very back pinball room yeah. and then all the way along the side pinball room and then back out to the front bar yeah, to get yeah. through the whole timeline. And yeah. it would have taken, I reckon, easily 45 minutes if you wanted to read the whole thing. Well, the way – so that was revision one. That was a revision one. And the revision – I did a revision two 
in 2016, same year, but I just added in a few panels more. When I say panels, this is how we, this is how I created it. I created it in panels, and then the panels, panels were digitally stick, stuck together. Created havoc on computers because the the files are so huge. Like people were telling me, oh, why don't you? Anyway, and I was telling people, you wouldn't believe that I printed this out and pasted it together in good old. Microsoft Paint. They <laughs> paint. would not paint. Microsoft, Microsoft Paint. They would not believe me. And I said, "This is the only. This is the only program that can actually handle it." Oh, Good old gosh. Microsoft Paint at the time. A revision. I, I did a revision, which I added a further a couple more panels and made it even longer. But if you look at, say, something, the height of. If you take an A3 sheet of paper. And hold it in um, what's the height of an A3 sheet of paper? 240 millimeters, something. Yeah. So if you do it at that height, it ends up being eight meters long. It, and that's only from 1948 to 2003. So you can imagine yeah. <laughs> the whole thing finished. There was no, there'd be no way of putting it anywhere. You need a um, yeah, around, you need the, a around the fence line of the MCG. Yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> and that's what they need to put up. Yeah. I've actually like, like I could I could talk a lot about how, you know, I, I I think I wouldn't actually have to talk to somebody in person in front of the in front of the timeline to explain a few more things because it's a visual thing. Yeah. And and uh, what? Where can people see this online? Is there a link that I can no, put the show you notes? can't you can't no, see it online. Trouble. You can't uh, see it online. And yeah, I've always thought yeah I should do that. But one thing one thing Norma. Norbert did sort of instill in my brain was that if you make it too public, then it won't be special. Okay. <laughs> so you Which have to build it and they will come, basically. I'm going to try and showcase in, at Pinfest 2016, which is 13 metres long. There's actually a photo of it somewhere. I've got it in my, in my wardrobe. <laughs> and, it's, okay. and, it, and it's been sitting there rolled up since 2016. I haven't unrolled it. So it hasn't been shown it was actually shown in the in the US at the Pacific Pinball Museum a few years ago. They they printed out their own version and they they exhibited it in one of their in one of their exhibitions. Um, That's good. Which was cool. But the, the thing I like about, like I said, you really need to see it visually. Talk about it while you're standing next to it. And the thing that really captures, well, captures my imagination or or captures the whole essence of the timeline is that people always talk about, oh, Adam's family and, you know, the 90s and the, from the 90s till now, they always talk about, you know, the dot matrix games and they don't see sort of back, they don't look back at what came before that. They sort of seem to turn a blind eye at mechanical games and, you know, older games, first solid yep. state games. Yeah. If you stand next to the pinball timeline and stand where the... 1990 marker is okay that's when the first dot matrix games came out if you stand at the 1990 marker look to your right and they're the machines you know from 1990 to 2003 or and beyond it's only maybe a fifth or a sixth of the length of the timeline wow you stand in 1990 and look backwards towards humpty dumpty it's miles away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I tell people, it just gives you a feeling of 
you know, you're only you're only talking about the last 20 years of pinball, but look behind you or look to yeah. your left and see how much history there's beyond. That's yeah. a great. It's a great way to put it. It really is. It really is. What I've also I can't remember. What was the first game with the dot matrix? It was Checkpoint. Oh, okay, there you go. By Data Thank East. You. It was Checkpoint. Yeah. yeah. Good old Data East. The innovators. Yeah. Stereo sound. Dot matrix displays. They they had everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Data East. Yes, correct. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. It's it's funny. It's I, I laugh when you say that. What was the first game with this? What was the first game with that? Because like, I don't practice pinball history anymore. Like I don't I don't think about it anymore. And <gasps> and you lose a lot of you know you lose a uh, a lot of um, let's say memory. You lose you lose Thanks. a lot of data. Yeah. Uh, and I, I say to people, look, if I was a if I was a um, if I went to uni and I was a, a teacher and I did a a class on pinball history, you know, every day of the week, uh, that wouldn't be a problem. But because I'm not, I'm not refreshing or repeating, and I'm not looking through pinball history anymore. I, 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 t- I tend to lose stuff, you know. Yeah. It tends to, right. you tend to forget it. And sometimes, before we started this, before we started this recording, remember how I said I've got a, a print of the pinball timeline in my corridor, which is a small print. It's eight meters long. My corridor is long enough to accommodate it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes. Somebody will come up with a question like you just did, you know, like yeah. what was the first game that, yeah, it was, it was such and such a game. But somebody will come up with a, a question or somebody will pose a question somewhere on Facebook or something. And I, hang on, did I include that in the timeline or where was that? So I actually go to the timeline on my wall and find yeah. it and read it. And it's all these little paragraphs that I've put in there and I've actually write and I've, I read what I wrote at this point in time, you know, almost a decade ago. And look at it and say, geez, I was smart. <laughs> I don't remember any of what I've written, but that was a good little paragraph that I wrote. <laughs> so cool. So cool. That's good. So if it's on display, keep an eye out for it, peoples. Go along and see it. It's definitely worth spending some time looking at it. I know. I really liked it. Now, what can you tell me more about PinFest? We had a chat with Chris about uh, establishing it, and you have been a long uh, member of the committee for that. What was your earliest involvement with PinFest? Well, we basically got a, an email, or I can't remember what it was, an email. Carrier pigeon, probably. So, God knows. Saying, <laughs> meet us, from Chris Slevin, saying, yep. meet us. We've got something very important to discuss. Meet us at Pizza and Pinball on such and such a date. And then we went there and he told us what was what was his special announcement. And, and I listened to the podcast that you did with Chris and I'm not quite happy with his <laughs> rendition of historical and uh, rendition of events, so I'll, I think I'll impose my own. Yeah, so that's how it that's how it got that's how it got started. Chris basically called everybody up that he thought would be able to help, and we all turned up at a meeting. And he said, "Right, we got eight weeks to to do this, you know, and we need so many pinball machines. We didn't know how many pinball machines we needed. Somebody went out and measured the room at Caves Beach. That's where we had it." I can't remember who was that, who that was, and we figured out, well, okay, we need about 50-odd machines, so all right, I'll put my hand, I'll bring four. Chris Chris bought 12, you know, Eddie, Stephen Edwards bought like seven. Like We all pitched in pretty heavily. It was quite a hard slog. What, um, how it started, how it started was that there was a, f- a friend of ours who was in the council, who was a a councillor in the Newcastle City Council was at a, a lunch meeting 
as these councillors do all the time, you know, discuss things over lunch at Caves Beach Hotel. And the conversation turned to pinballs somehow. You know, like, you know how conversations go for some reason that, that turned into pinballs. The owner of Caves Beach Hotel, and I can't remember his name, I think it was Bill Saddington at the time, overheard these guys play, talking about pinball machines. And then he said, oh, do you reckon you could have a... Do you reckon you could have a like a pinball festival here if we give you a room? And so our friend from the council who knew Chris contacted Chris Levin and that's how it got started. I don't think Chris explained it the same way as I have, but that's, that's the history behind it. As part of your conversation with Chris last time, we didn't know how it was going to go. Like we didn't know if anybody would turn up. I remember, you know, Chris said the same thing in, in, your, in your podcast. He said, we didn't know what was going to happen. But I had, I had visions of like a car show where people would turn up, walk around the pinballs, have a game, and then walk out. You know how it is? With, you know how it is with car shows where people line up cars in some parking lot or park, you know, in, in some car park? Yep. And that's how I envisioned the whole thing to be. Instead, within 10, 15 minutes, you know, half the games are getting played and that people mm. aren't leaving. And then within an hour, the whole everybody was playing a game and people lining up to play them. So we didn't yeah. like we didn't know what was going to happen. So it was a huge success, but a strange. It, this is this is a funny story. The Friday night that we set up Pinfest at Caves Beach, it's a pub. Caves Beach is a, uh, Caves Beach Hotel where we had it is a pub, and this is Friday night. So you can imagine that was, there's a lot of people in the pub, and we're on this room to the side setting up all these pinballs and we've got all these pinballs set up the lights are dark we're making sure everything works half the pin, you know the pinballs are there all on to make sure that the fuses don't blow and people just started coming in from nowhere you know and we're looking at each other who's this guy do you know this guy no it's just people from the public decide to come in and have a game it got to the point where okay this is enough all right we've got to chuck these people out you know we've got work to do so we ushered everybody out I had to go to the bathroom, so I went to the bathroom, and there go, there's a guy in the bathroom that we kicked out, one, a member of the public that we kicked out, and we sort of walked out of the bathroom together at the same time, and he says to me, so where are you going to next? And it took me a split <laughs> second. Like, you know, it took me a split second to, what's this guy talking Oh, I understand now. He thinks that we're a bloody travelling circus, <laughs> like, and we're going to go somewhere. Like, it took me a split second to figure that out, and I said, no, no, look, no, no, no. So I explained to him, look, this is a this is potentially a one-off thing that you know we've got pinball people from all around Newcastle and the Central Coast, and they bought a machine. You know, they bought several machines each, and we're all set them up, and we're going to turn them on tomorrow. Blah blah blah. And we'll have we'll get people pay to come in, and so these are all games from different collectors around the. You know, so on 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 the story goes that I'm explaining to him, and he's looking at me with this confused look on his face, you know, and like he just couldn't get it. I couldn't understand that, you know, this is all collect. This is all people that have collected pennies over the years and they're bringing their collections to new, to, to Caves Beach. Like, I say this story has been, has been told many times. I say, it would have been just easier for me to say, oh, we'll be in Taree next week or we'll go to Coffs Harbour next week. It would have yeah. been just easier for me to say that and just walk away. <laughs> Gone on and on to greater and, and greater things, the old Pinfest in Newcastle. Well done to everyone involved. Yeah. Uh, great concept, great concept. That's cool. Now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of, the, uh, of who you really are. 
Give me your favourite Aussie movie. It'd have to be Mad Max. Ah, it's the old, it's the perennial favourite of everybody. Number one, be, two, or three. It has to be Mad Max. Oh, one and two. One you don't and like two. Tina. Tina Turner and didn't I, make I remember the cut. Going, I remember going, I was too young to go and see Mad Max at the cinemas, one and two, because um, it was rated R in those days and you had to be 18. And then I went to see Beyond the Thunderdome in 86, I think it came out, something like that. But, yeah, the first one's always the best one. And the second one was just as good. If you're a movie buff or if you can remember that far back into 1979 or 1981 and all that, that type of, especially Mad Max 2, it was all that dystopian, uh, futuristic movie. I think Mad Max, I don't know if Mad Max was one of the first, I'm pretty sure it was, and it spawned all these other futuristic, dystopian, post-apocalyptic movies after that. Who knows? They're probably all B-grade movies. But anyway. So, so you're blaming Mad Max for Waterworld. Good on you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes, you could. You could potentially, Yes. <laughs> Uh, and uh, give me the Aussie music we uh, we had a listen to Great Southern Land by Ice House on the way into the show what uh, you grew up at around the same vintage as me so we had some an amazing uh, array of Aussie bands so apart from Ice House uh, what's what's something people um, I won't even mention Joe Dolce with the heritage when I was a boy just about the eighth grade yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, Joe, well, let's mention Joe Dolce because something came up on Facebook the other day and people don't realise that this song was a hit in the UK, in Italy, in France, in Germany. Like, it went outside of Australia. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, we're stuck with that. <laughs> Not a bad legacy. <laughs> no, I mean, look, AC, AC, the obviously comes to mind, but then there's, you know, there's high, sky hooks. I won't mention crowded house, but <laughs> <laughs> there was a crowded we'll house. There was a, yeah, there was a crowded house concert a couple of weeks ago here in Newcastle at the vineyards, and they got rained out. But yeah, oh. they're still popular. They're, they're, it was a sold out crowd, so you know, and I think they're all people from you know my vintage and younger that. Yeah, they're, they're still attracting the crowds. But, you know, yeah. Australian Crawl, Hoodoo Gurus, Mental as Anything, Not Air Supply. Lost in love and I don't know. <laughs> not Air Supply. Not air Supply. First no, Aussie no. band to take America by storm. No, 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 no. And, not, and not just America. Not just America. No. I, I worked overseas a lot in the early 2000s. And I worked in the Philippines, Indonesia, and places like that. And in the Philippines, they loved Air Supply. You know, in talking to people my age in the Philippines, and they absolutely loved it. And we said, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they made it everywhere. But, yeah, unfortunately, not one of my favourites. Now, tell me your uh, secret shame games. <gasps> my secret shame. Something you love that uh, most people either don't appreciate or outright don't like. Uh, I'm actually looking at a few now behind me um, as I speak. Let's look at the first one is Cybernaut by Bally from 1985. Wow. And this used to be the game that my brother and I used to love to hate. I decided to, when one came up years ago, I decided to buy it. Ridiculous price. 
But you know, they only made like something like five hundred. You might have to you might want to Google how many they made. I think they only made about seven hundred or something like that, something or eight hundred, something very seven fifty, something along those lines. I don't know. Production nine hundred. Nine hundred, there you go. Yeah. Doug, we used to Doug love Watt. to hate this game. We used to love to hate this game. And my brother used to say and this is back in eighty five, he used to say, When I get enough money, I'm gonna buy one of these just so I can put a sledgehammer through the thing. Oh, <laughs> poor Cybernaut. Yeah, poor Cybernaut. But I, it's actually quite a I've – had, I've had pinball parties at my place and people have played Cybernaut and never played it or, you know, the people that either never played it, didn't even know it existed or yep. underappreciate it and then walk away saying, after I've explained to them the rules, there's a few quirky rules to it, after I've explained to them the rules and they've played it, they walk away feeling satisfied to say, yes, this is actually quite a good game. Wow, it's, you know? it's got it's got the xenon tube ramp. It's got drop yeah. target. It's got a tic tac toe targets up the top. Yeah, you know, yeah. everything old is new again. That doesn't look like a too bad a game, apart from it the was art. It's a little freaky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I actually quite like the artwork. And <laughs> who poked the girl in the eye? Why she got an eye patch? That was I was talking to. I was talking to. I don't know why she's got the eye patch, but I was talking to uh, Doug Watson. Is it yep. Doug Watson that made the artwork? Yep. Yeah, I was talking to Doug Watson, and he, from memory, he said he uh, modelled her from somebody working at Bally at the time. Wow. Without the eye patch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without the eye patch. just thought he threw that in. And you know what? In hindsight, I think, you think about these things, like nothing's ever written down in a, in a history book sometimes about these things, but remember Escape from New York? Yes, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell had an eye patch. With his eye patch. Not right. And and you could sort of almost put two and two together. This sort of came out, you know, Escape from New York came out only a few years before and you could sort of put two and two together. Oh, yeah, it's an eye patch. It's a female female snake pliskin with an eye patch. Yeah, so talking to to Doug Watson, I know I I, I could ramble on forever. Talking to Doug Watson, he always used to hide the names of the designers in his artwork. Not always, but most of the time. And so did Paul Farris from uh, when he did Paragon. And every time I play Paragon, I show people, here, look here, there's actually a name there. And they go, oh, that's cool. They can't get their eyes off uh, off his wife in the bikini, though, to start with. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny, in Cybernaut, it's the same thing. And Cybernaut, if you look at the if you look at the back glass and you look at the android type guy and you look on his thigh or on his, the front of his leg, you can actually see the designer's name on there, and it's nicely woven into the pattern. For years, I hadn't noticed that, and I uh, uh, and I owned the game for a couple of years then, and then just one day, it just popped out at me. Oh, there it is, bugger! Uh, I found it. That looks <laughs> yeah. like a fun game. Well done. There wouldn't be that many in Australia either. No, I don't. You know, Nine hundred made forty years ago, or whatever it is. Um, there wouldn't be many left. There wouldn't be many in Australia. But it's, like I said, once I showed people how to play and the not the rules, but the, the strategies on the gameplay, then they walk away satisfied that, yes, it's it's actually quite a good game. And looking back at all those years when my brother and I used to walk into an arcade, you know, whatever it was, 40 cents into it, and say, right, I'm only going to have one game because I know it's a deadly, it's a bastard of a game. We're not going to get a game on this, but I just want to have, <laughs> have one game and then walk away and play something else. It was really all to do with the settings of the game. Like it was too, it just didn't play right. It was either too steep or something like that, and it really ruined the game. So yeah. I'm actually quite glad I bought it because it's it's quite a good one. 
Got to um, appreciate it for what it is, yeah. Yeah, and next to it is a game called Title Fight by Gottlieb. Ah, I know that one. Yep. Those, what they used to call uh, street-level games, where they took out all the ramps, took out all the fancy stuff. That's another game that people either say, oh, this is a piece of shit, or they haven't, you haven't actually played it yet <laughs> long yeah. enough. Same thing again. When I've had people here and I've shown them the rules and the strategies, they sort of walk away saying, yes, it's not quite a bad game. Maybe one, there's one right behind me called Bally, uh, the Bally Atlantis from 1991. There wasn't much love for the old Bally's just before the dot matrix dis- uh, display kicked in. And they've all sort of seemed to disappear off the face of the earth. Mm. But, yeah, Bally Atlantis from 1990. People saying, how much did you pay for this? And I go, (laughs) (laughs) I paid too much money. But anyway, that's another one. There's some good old ones there, right? So your place is on the the list for a visit soon. Yeah. (laughs) My place used to be up and running with all the games going and everything smick. And now it's just like I can't be bothered now. Like um, (laughs) – uh, it's like I have a. I know that there's a problem with this game, and I know that there's a problem with that game. My my son had a party here about six months ago, and I said, "Yeah, come and have a party here." So we had a barbecue, and then everybody came in to start playing games. And poor old, I've got a Zachariah pinball champ started playing up. Then the centaur broke down. Mm. Then they said, uh, "So they're all just sitting there, not not getting any love at the moment." And I'll, I'll get around them. <laughs> I remember that was who was it's one of the pinball tips I've had in the past is when something breaks, get onto it quickly because it leads to lots of other things <laughs> breaking down as well. Yeah, luckily these I, I know what's wrong. I think I know what's wrong with them, and it's not a, uh, a big issue. But it's what, enough what, to drive you mad. Yes. Yeah, it's enough to drive me mad. And what's really driving me, what really drove me mad, was somebody. My sister has one of my games. She's looking after one of my grand lizards, and one of the displays broke down. And so when she was here last, I showed her completely replaced the displays. Yeah. Right? She pulled out all the displays, and actually my brother-in-law bought a set of new displays. You know, the the, I can't, the LED, not, LED, yeah, the LED low ones. Voltage. Good. Yeah, yep. the LED low voltage one. And I explained to him, look, you just can't plug and play these things in. You got to buy the whole thing. You got to buy the yep. displays, change every display. And buy, and buy the board and blah, blah, blah. So he did that. But in the meantime, I've got a high speed sitting behind me here next to my Atlantis. And he came over and said, so how do I open this thing? So I opened up my high speed and I said, I open up to open up the back box and no key. Where is this key? So uh-huh. God knows how long I've had high speed playing and no key for the back box. So now, yeah. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Fuck, that comes a drill. That comes a uh, drill. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah the, if something happens to high speed, yeah, the drill will have to come out. Luckily, I've got a, a Road Kings, which is the same vintage, and I showed him how to open that up. But yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, I'm going to let you get on with your weekend, but I really appreciate the time we've had and the chats. I learned a lot, and I hope oh, people uh, will get a chance to come and see the pinball timeline to get onto Amazon, buy some pinball books off you, maybe yeah. buy an air supply CD from yeah. the bargain bin. <laughs> Yeah, and I will yeah. catch up with you at another tournament. We seem to bump into each other at tournaments a fair bit. Yeah, COVID has put a stop to that, unfortunately. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll have It'll to come back. back. It'll come I'll, back. All right, mate. You have a good weekend and thank you again. No worries. Thank you very much. Good on you. Catch yeah. you.
So there we have it, Marco Rosignoli. I can never say it as good as he can. Uh, a guy with far too much time, energy, motivation and intelligence on his hand who's achieved something in pinball that not many other people will ever achieve. And that's right, some extremely interesting books on the history of pinball and, of course, that massive poster, which can be seen at Pinfest in Newcastle and he's promised me it'll be there next year in 2023 or at the museum in the USA that you can track down. I want to thank him again for spending the time for chatting and filling in a little bit about his history and please feel free to contact me Aussie Pinball Podcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or ideas for future guests. And we'll leave you with an Italian-sounding name from a Melbourne-born songstress of an Italian family who happens to be someone I greatly admire, her songwriting and singing skills, that being Vanessa Amorosi and her most famous hit. Hope you enjoy and catch you next time.